From the campuses of East Tennessee, State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck. Why is the South so religious? Why do we call this whole region of the southern United States the Bible Belt? How did it all begin? We are going to address that question today by approaching the origins of Southern evangelicalism. My guest is Professor Thomas Little. Professor Little is chair of the Department of History at Emory & Henry College in Emory, Virginia, and serves as the director of its Appalachian Oral History Project. And he has recently published a book in 2013 called The Origins of Southern Evangelicalism, Religious Revivalism in the South Carolina Low Country, 1670 to 1760. And he's in the studio with me to talk about this book and this interesting aspect of, uh, of history. Uh, welcome, Professor Little, to Religion for Life. Well, thank you for having me, and thanks for all the work you do uh, through your radio program and uh, through your efforts at the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton. And I, again, appreciate your having me here today to talk about my new book. Well, great. Well, welcome. How did you come to write this book? Well, this book really grew out of my Ph.D. dissertation at Rice University uh, in Houston, Texas. I did my Ph.D. work under the supervision of John Bowles, who edits the Journal of mm. Southern History mm -hmm. uh, and specializes in Southern religion. And he encouraged me to look at the, the rise of evangelical religion in the Lower South roughly during the period between 1740 and 1800, that is to say between the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, which is known as the Great Revival in the South. And after I finished my dissertation, the more research I did, the more I became convinced that the really important period was the period before 1740. So I okay. sort of uh, moved back in time and looked uh, at the 17th and early 18th century uh, history of the Lower South and sort of started to focus on the, the origins or beginnings question. Uh, and that's how this book uh, came into being. And the subtitle of your book is uh, Religious Revivalism in the South Carolina Low Country. What is that area that's described as low country? Yeah, in, in part, my uh, um, subtitle uh, is an effort to, to limit the study to uh, an area of, of South Carolina uh, comprising the, the coastal plain. Um, and the coastal plain is separated from the Piedmont region by the, the so-called fall uh, line or fall zone. Uh, and the, the Lowcountry region is a, a geographical and a cultural uh, region. The area is uh, roughly uh, at or slightly above sea level, uh, and it's really the, the cultural center of the, the Lower South, which comprises uh, North Carolina and uh, or you know, uh, the southern parts of, of North Carolina from the Cape Fear River Valley uh, southward, all of South Carolina, uh, all of Georgia, and then after England acquired uh, from Spain at the end of the uh, French and Indian War, East and West Florida, so the, the Lower South uh, so region. So this is a larger region than just the state of North or South Carolina today. That's it right. It covers the whole coastal region, really. Yes. 
from uh, North Carolina down into into Florida. Even. Right, but I I chose to focus on the the Low Country region in part so I wouldn't have to sort of tell the story of evangelical religion in the back country, which is a whole other story. Uh, okay, the back country was settled uh, primarily by people moving down the Great Philadelphia Wagon Road uh, from Pennsylvania uh, through Maryland, uh, through Virginia, through Western North Carolina, into the backcountry region of South Carolina and Georgia. So by focusing on the low country, I, I sort of stopped short of having to tell the, the story of revivalism in the, the South Carolina backcountry. The coastal plain was settled by uh, people um, um, from the Atlantic world, from Europe and, and Africa and the Caribbean, uh, whereas that backcountry region was, was settled uh, via the Great Philadelphia Wagon Road. So your, the, your, your book um, um, fills in some holes or actually challenges some views um, regarding the origins of evangelicalism in the South. So uh, what is your book contributing to this discussion? That's, that's a good uh, question. Um, traditionally, historians have uh, tended to emphasize that evangelical Christianity came late to the American uh, mm. South. Uh, and as one historian put it as, quote, an exotic import uh, rather than an indigenous development. Uh, and a number of books, including uh, Donald Matthews's Religion in the Old South, Christine Lee Hireman's uh, Southern Cross, The Beginnings of the Bible Belt, have basically stressed that the First Great Awakening missed uh, the Southern colonies, uh, heavily influenced, heavily affected the middle colonies and the New England colonies and the British Isles, but basically missed the southern colonies. And it wasn't until the, the very late 1740s, 1750s, and 1760s that evangelical religion gained a foothold in the Anglican uh, colonial South. So my mm -hmm. book pushes the, the origins of Southern evangelicalism uh, to an earlier period before the First Great uh, Awakening, and that's important for a number of different reasons. One, it shows that historians in writing about religion in the early South have um, tended to emphasize the importance of the Upper South, that is, uh, Virginia and Maryland, and mm -hmm. part particularly including uh, Virginia. Uh, and uh, they have tended to um, suggest that the, the history of religion in the early South is the history of religion in Virginia writ large. Okay. So I shift the focus to the lower Southern colonies, to you know, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, uh, Southern North Carolina, and show that uh, indeed evangelicalism had a had a earlier beginning than historians have traditionally recognized. And that sort of helps us because um, um, scholars are coming to understand that um, the Bible Belt didn't emerge overnight. Rather, it took many, many decades for the South to become so intensely uh, religious. So some scholars have been sort of pushing the the narrative of evangelical evangelical Christianity forward, and my book is important because I sort of step it back uh, and extend that timeline from the 1720s and 1730s, and that timeline would extend into the 
19th century into the 1830s and 1840s and 1850s when we can legitimately speak of what uh, a Baltimore newspaper uh, editor referred to in the 1920s as the, the so-called Bible Belt. So it uh, so you've pushed it back that the, the roots of evangelicalism or evangelicalism itself was earlier than even the Great Awakening, even George Whitfield. For example, there's an illustration in your book that I thought was interesting, that it was really, what, what was his name, Josiah Smith? Yes. That actually kind of made uh, Whitfield somewhat uh, legitimate. Yes. That he came to South Carolina and Josiah Smith wrote a review of him. Right. And, and sent it to northern papers. That's right. So in a sense, it really certainly was established at Whitfield's actions in, in South Carolina. Yes. Uh, there's a, there was a, dis, a very strong dissenting uh, presence in uh, South Carolina from the very beginning. And that dissenting presence included uh, a significant number of Congregationalists, both from England, Old England, and New England. Mm-hmm. And Josiah Smith was a, a grandson of one of the earliest Congregationalist uh, settlers. Um, his father was trained at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland um, and uh, uh, devoted his uh, son uh, to uh, ministerial training. And he went to a, a preparatory school in Massachusetts and graduated from uh, Harvard in the 1720s and quickly emerged as one of the most significant uh, Congregationalist uh, Mm -hmm. ministers in America and one of the leading figures in the the movement that would culminate in the First Great Awakening. So he was espousing sentiments in the 1720s and 1730s, well before George Whitfield's famous preaching tour of the colonies. and was a strong supporter of of, of Whitfield uh, in 1740 and 1741. So what what is the um, there, there seemed to be a contest between the Church of England, the Ang- Anglican Church, who has a presence, an established presence in in South Carolina, and makes it so we are the you know the Acts of 1704, or the Church Act and Test Act, to make it kind of established. Right. But at the same time, there's also a great resistance among even those who are Anglicans, right. but other people too, to kind of the high church or the heady yes. church aspect. Yes. There's more of a, a need for what? A heart, spirit? Uh, yes. Of course, the, you know, the state church tradition is uh, vitally important in spreading uh, Christianity um, from the uh, you know, uh, late Roman Empire through the Middle Ages into the early modern period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the uh, separation between church and state that we're familiar with is, is uh, something that grew out of the American Revolution. Right. But the, the state church tradition was vitally important in um, sort of spreading Christianity in colonial America. There was an established church in the New England colonies. It happened mm-hmm. to be the Congregational Church, but mm-hmm. it was established. And the Anglican Church was established in the the southern colonies, all of the southern colonies and the British West Indian colonies, including Barbados and and Jamaica and the Leeward Islands. Um, Because of uh, South Carolina's majority dissenting population, there was a a vicious uh, fight over the establishment of the Church of England at the beginning of the 18th century uh, in 1704. 
1705 and 1706. And in order to establish the Church of England as the uh, South Carolina's state church, Anglicans um, excluded dissenters from the legislature through uh, mm-hmm. uh, the promulgation of a, text, uh, a, a test act uh, and then proceeded to uh, pass a, a, an act establishing the, the Church of England as the official state church of the colony, the Church Act of 1704. The Crown, uh, for a number of reasons, disallowed both of those 1704 measures, but two years later, um, Anglicans in South Carolina, who again were uh, in the minority, passed another church act, uh, and that officially established the Church of England as the state church of South Carolina. And certainly that state support, the collecting of tax monies to pay for uh, ministerial salaries, uh, the collecting of tax monies to pay for the building of churches and the maintenance of church property uh, certainly uh, helped to uh, uh, bolster the position of the Anglican uh, church. And over time, uh, there was a tendency for many Anglican uh, ministers to emphasize uh, rationalism uh, and revelation um, uh, and the reasonableness of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And in some important respects, evangelical Christianity is a, a reaction uh, to that growing rationalism in the, the official state church of England. Yeah, it seems like it was, um, that all, they always want to rail against what they think is as deism. Yes. Right? That God kind of created things, but Basically, things run by yes. natural order. Yes. Whereas the evangelical movement seemed to want to say, no, God, the reason that you're suffering is because God's doing this, or you've sinned and God's punishing you. And yes. That, that seemed to be uh, right. a, a and, lot of the argument back and forth. Yes, and deism was a, was a boogie in the uh-huh. 18th century. It was a, you know, the, the, the watchword, and you know, okay. uh, even Anglican priests railed against deism, but you know, their, their critics, those evangelicals like Josiah Smith and Isaac Chandler and, and others, um, would point to that emphasis by many uh, Anglican ministers uh, on, you know, rational religion as sort of leading toward ultimately deism. Uh, so that was, that was certainly an issue, and it was an issue in the First Great Awakening, um, uh, ministers debated deism in the, the pages of the South Carolina newspaper, the South Carolina uh, Gazette. But, you know, one point I think um, we need to understand is that the, the Church of England uh, itself uh, made serious efforts at religious renewal and revival and reform mm-hmm. in the late 17th and early 18th century. Of course, they attempted to secure state support for their church, uh, just as the Congregationalist uh, Church secured state support for the, the, the Puritan Congregational right. Church in New England. Um, but even where the Church of England was not established, as in New England or as in the Middle Colonies, the Anglican Church made significant gains uh, in the 18th century um, through uh, uh, the efforts of uh, organizations such as the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts hmm. uh, and the S- Society for the Promotion of Christian Knowledge, which published religious uh, 
tracts, including uh, the Bible. So Anglicans were um, active in attempting to, you know, Christianize um, people at home in England and abroad in the in the English colonies overseas. So they're they're active. Certainly, that state support uh, gave them a, a decided advantage. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Thomas Little, professor at Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, and the author of The Origins of Southern Evangelicalism, Religious Revivalism in the South Carolina Low Country, 1670 to 1760, talking about the roots of evangelicalism previous uh, to the Great Awakening uh, in, in the South. And um, there's an interest. you talk about, um, we're talking about kind of white people in some sense, but there is also, you had a, a great number of enslaved people um, in, in that area. And uh, one of the intriguing issues was the hesitancy to evangelize them. Can you, can you talk about some of the issues surrounding this? Um, sure. The, of course, at least by 1708, 38 years after Charleston was founded, uh, South Carolina had a black majority. Mm -hmm. um, there were significant numbers of enslaved uh, Africans and African Americans in South Carolina from the very beginning of settlement, um, perhaps as much as a quarter to a third of the population was black in the 17th century, and that proportion continued to grow so that by, at least by 1708, we know that because a, a, a South Carolina governor uh, took a census in that year, at least by 1708, there were more blacks than whites in South Carolina. Uh, and by the 1720s and 1730s, blacks would come to outnumber whites two to one. Mm. So South Carolina's population uh, was uh, heavily black, um, and uh, there were large numbers of enslaved uh, Africans and African Americans in the colony. Generally speaking, um, white slave owners opposed um, um, ministerial efforts to Christianize slaves because they feared the social effects of Christianization. Um, Europeans tended to associate Christianity with freedom and not mm -hmm. with enslavement. Uh, and uh, slave owners uh, argued uh, not only uh, that baptized slaves might lay claim to freedom and equality, but they also argued that Christianity made slaves difficult to manage, that um, Christian slaves were proud uh, and so forth. So there were arguments against efforts uh, to uh, Christianize slaves and uh, hmm. theologians, uh, attempted to overcome those uh, objections. Uh, and some historians have, have argued that in, in attempting to overcome those uh, objections, um, Christian ministers sort of laid the, the foundation for a, a defense of, of slavery later in the 19th century, uh, that you know, slavery was biblically justified and, and slavery was in essence a positive uh, good. So. Uh, there were, there were um, uh, many cases in which uh, ministers found that slave owners were, were adamantly opposed to uh, their efforts to Christianize slaves. And, you know, it's important to remember that Africans were also clinging to their own, you know, traditional religious beliefs and, 
and resisting efforts uh, uh, on the part of ministers to, to spread Christianity. And there's always a shortage of trained ministers, and, and not all ministers were, were committed to that, that uh, um, mission among uh, Africans and African-American slaves. But it seemed more when the evangelical movement took, um, took up steam, picked up steam, that it uh, was more effective obviously it yes uh, it, it was uh, more effective uh, within about a generation of course evangelicals and I talk about some of these uh, um, individuals in the book evangelicals uh, faced opposition from uh, other uh, Europeans in their efforts to Christianize slaves because they raised fears of uh, uh, slave rebellion um, and by the 1760s, evangelicals, you know, began to bring into their churches a substantial number of uh, African and African-American uh, slaves so that by, you know, between 1760 and, and say 1810 or 1820, large numbers of um, uh, slaves would turn to um, uh, evangelical Christianity. So um, I think that that's, you know, an important um, point to uh, emphasize, but you're, you're right to, to uh, point to the importance of the issue of slave uh, conversion. Well, what was the, the, the conditions that made South Carolina ripe for um, the Great Awakening and George Whitfield's message? That's, that's another uh, important question. One sub-theme of my book is that um, contrary to what an older generation of historians um, wrote, South Carolina didn't grow spiritually lethargic and indifferent to religion over time, over the colonial period, mm -hmm. as, it, as the colony grew rich on, on rice. Um, but rather the colony became increasingly religious over time. And that occurred um, mm -hmm. in large measure because of the, the efforts of um, Anglican and um, Presbyterian and Congregationalist kind of competition for religion uh, kind of perhaps. Ministers, it, you know, this, this competition emerged out of this, this diversity, this pluralism mm -hmm. yeah. that was evident in the colony from the very beginning. Um, and um, the um, efforts of ministers to uh, form congregations, um, the fact that uh, l large numbers of adults were regular churchgoers um, really made the, the colony conducive to uh, George Whitfield's uh, barnstorming preaching tour of 1740 and 1741. So I think that that's important. There has to be in place a, a a system, uh, a structure of, of churches, and there clearly uh, was a system of, of uh, churches in the colony, um, a system of belief that sort of helped to uh, explain why Whitfield was ultimately successful. And is there a sense in which there is a need psychologically for a more emotional message, um, uh, or, or as they looked um, to kind of the problems of the world or, or something like that, that there was something satisfying? 
about that kind of message? Yeah, it wasn't said. That wasn't not presented in a more liturgical type of institution. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. I um, don't um, attempt in the book to psychologize and, yeah. and and sort of delve into the particular reasons people uh, turn to evangelical Christianity, but certainly it's safe to say that um, evangelical Christianity offered um, 18th century South Carolinians a, a more emotionally satisfying form of uh, religion. Uh, although, as I stress, those who uh, were uh, brought up uh, and adhered to liturgical traditions, um, like the Anglican Church were, were deeply devoted Christians, okay. uh, just in a different sort of sense. Um, but but I think it's right to say that that uh, emotional appeal uh, drove uh, the the rise of evangelical Christianity. My guest is Thomas Little, author of The Origins of Southern Evangelicalism, Religious Revivalism in the South Carolina Lowcountry, 1670 to 1760. We just have a couple of minutes left, but I, I want to ask you a question that might be perhaps the, beyond the scope of your book, but if you can help anyway. Why is it that the South is evangelical, so strongly evangelical today, as it was to say, New York or New England, who also experienced the Great Awakening? That's a, uh, a big question uh, that I'm not sure that I can uh, fully uh, answer. Clearly, if you look at um, um, church attendance, church uh, uh, going, um, the number of uh, people who um, uh, respond to pollsters um, positively when they are asked if they believe in God, if they have been born again, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if they consider themselves to be Christian. Clearly, all the evidence points to a, an area in the United States um, um, centered in the American South, um, with parts of the Midwest included, uh, parts of southern uh, Ohio, southern Indiana, southern mm -hmm. Illinois, right. southern Iowa, sort of included in this Bible Belt, um, region. Uh, why the South is, is uh, uh, so intensely religious today is, is uh, something of a mystery, but in part, I think that the, you know, the larger forces of industrialization um, did not affect the South in the same way that they affected uh, the northern uh, parts of the United States uh, and the, the West Coast uh, even, which is considered to be you know, much more mm -hmm. secular than um, other parts of the country, especially including um, the South. But I think it's that, that uh, pattern of revivalism that I try to trace in my book uh, that helps to explain why the South became so religious. These repeated efforts that we can trace from the early 18th century through the 19th century into the 20th right. century and beyond, this pattern of um, efforts at renewal and revival and reform that we see that really help to explain why the South today is, is so uh, intensely uh, religious. 
Tom Little, my guest on Religion for Life, author of The Origins of Southern Evangelicalism, a Religious Revivalism in the South Carolina Low Country from 1670 to 1760. Uh, Tom Professor at Emory and Henry College. Tom, thank you for this book, and thank you for being with me today on Religion for Life. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Chuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, hear us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well. Be well.